Thanks for listening. My name's Noah Lack. If you like sports and you're interested in business and you want to hear both from a unique perspective you've never heard from before, well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Athletes and Assets. Let's go. Episode two of the Athletes and Assets podcast is definitely going to be a memorable one because honestly, we have one of the most interesting people you will meet from playing basketball at Washington University, Tufts University, to becoming a software engineer who develops applications, a current data engineer at C3AI, a company on the forefront of technological innovation, a recent graduate from a master's program in Spain, and most importantly, a former teammate of mine, the pride and joy of Manhattan Beach, California. KJ Garrett, thank you so much for chatting with me today, my man. My brother, how we doing, Noah? We're doing great. Hey, let's skip the small talk. I, are you aware, and I'm going to tell you this story, okay? Are you aware that a couple years ago, a professional basketball coach called me out of the blue, and he was like, no, what's going on? And I'm like, hey, what's up? He's like, uh, so does KJ Garrett want to play pro? Like, you know, we're, we're having, we need some guys. We need a wing. We need, we're having tryouts. Like, we need, we need a guy. And, and me, out of all people, I, I had to be the one to tell him, like, uh, he, he's more interested in, like, computer science. I don't think he's, you know, I don't, <laughs> it's, it's not his thing, coach. Like, I, I'm sorry. And he's like, he pauses and he's on the phone and he's like, what the f*** are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I, it's, it's, he, he likes, he's, he's into the computer science. Like, <laughs> are you aware of that, that story? That Israeli basketball is not paying enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it, that was one of the most random phone conversations I had, but I went to bat for you um, at that point in time. But um, once again, man, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Super excited. We have so much to talk about today, um, but we're going to start off kind of with your background. So you mind talking about um, your upbringing, where you grew up, and what kind of got you into basketball? Surely, surely. Uh, born in London, England. Lived there for about two and a half years. My dad was playing professional basketball over there. Um, so he was drafted in 84 with Jordan, Kim Olajuwon, Charles Barkley. Uh, he was drafted to the, to the Bullets. Now the Wizards, obviously, but he played, you know, in the preseason, you know, a few games during the season. I think his contract was, you know, uh, wasn't set in stone. So they cut him after a while. He was six, eight. So, you know, he played the center role growing up because he was so tall. But really, he, you know, you couldn't couldn't play with Kim Olajuwon and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with that height as a center, you know. So he went overseas, played 13 years. And I, that's why I was born over there in, in London. But, you know, grew up in Manhattan Beach, Southern California over here. Um, very Man. lovely community. Paradise. Paradise. You've been here. We've had some fun over here. You just saw Kevin Durant over here the other day, didn't you, on the beach? Yeah, then in the summer, yeah. Exactly. That was a few months ago. But, yeah, obviously I got in the hoops because of my dad, right? Right. And my mom was supporting me every step of the way. She was the real bread breadwinner. Okay. So... She's in banking, finance, but, you know, if you set your mind to it, kind of woman, you know, if you, whatever you want to do, you can, you can achieve as long as you set your mind to it. So that was, I was privileged with that respect. 
Right. So obviously, you know, I would set my mind on the hoop game for sure. Absolutely. Just like all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Hoop dreams. And you're in Southern California. Uh, in my opinion, L.A., mecca of the basketball these days. There's no question about it. The best hoopers for the, from the past couple of years have come from L.A. It is a hoop city. So, you know, talk about your, you know, your love for the game, where you wanted to go in high school, what were your goals, who are you playing with? Yeah, bro. Um, I mean, growing up, we just had this little club team in Manhattan Beach. We got even better and better. We got some um, hopped into AAU from club to AAU, got into that circuit. And we're just getting exposed to to everything L.A. basketball, you know, seeing people like Stanley Johnson play or, you know, the kids from modern day Rex Fluger, you know, seeing the kids from Bosco and um, the guy from Crespi that played in, in Vermont. Um, I forgot his name, but, you, you know, just getting exposed to everyone like that. So that right. was lovely. Freshman year, I got cut playing hoops. I was just... I wasn't with it, bro. MJ? Okay, MJ. <laughs> right? Freshman year got cut. I was crying to my mom and dad. My dad couldn't believe it. My mom was so upset. And that summer, I just went off, you know, just basketball every day, nine to five at the gym. Fortunate to run into some connections. Uh, Ryan Silver, who's actually, you know, he's big in the basketball world in L.A. Um, but... Yeah, he put got me connected with so-and-so, got me into these camps and stuff, got me to BTI with Robert Eichhardt, who really blessed me and was able to help me get into University of Washington, play basketball eventually. But just it took me a while, bro, but I worked my way up. And and I should have been in another school. I went to Miracosta, but I should have went to a private school, which would have they would have put me on varsity since day one because it was such a small school. But I literally – I played varsity one year of my high school career. Are you serious? I, no, no. I, I played varsity oh. junior year in, in Americos. It got no time. And then I started on varsity senior year with no looks before that. Yeah. Um, just, just no experience, bro. Like, put me in the game. <laughs> they were just – the only reason they loved me is because I was so athletic. But I eventually, you know, put my skills up yeah. and had the opportunity yeah. to play in the Pac-12 like a dream come true. Yeah, absolutely. Um that's crazy. One year of varsity. Um, I can speak to, to people that are listening, how athletic you are and unnecessarily athletic you are. Like it kind of pissed me off at times. Um, yeah. So me and KJ were teammates for basically the Jewish, the USA Jewish national basketball team, also known as Maccabi. And we're doing three man weave. And we're just laying, most of us are laying the ball up because that's, that's as high as we can get. Um, this guy, KJ, is barely stretched. He catches the ball off a three-man weave in like 360 East Bays at 7 a.m. in the morning. And I'm like, dude, what, stop, what is going on? Like, stop it. Like, that's the kind of athlete KJ is. Um, can you, was that, was that God's, God's gift or did you work for that? Talk about, just talk about your bounce real quick. When I was 13 or 14, and my dad was like, why can't you dunk yet? I'm like, dad, you were 6'4". <laughs> what, you're 5'9"? He said, why can't you dunk? Okay. Right? It was like that. So I'm over here jump training. I'm thinking jump training. What do I do? Plyometrics, okay. What type of plyometric movements can I do to get, to my, get my bounce up like that? So I'm, I'm just practicing trying to dunk, trying to touch rim at 14, you know? And that's what I was doing, just – 
I really, I just wanted it. I wanted it. And I think my body wasn't there yet, but I was gonna, I was gonna get there regardless. And, um, at first time I dunked was actually my 16th birthday. So I wish I could say it was 15 years old. I was, I was like six, two, six, six, one, maybe, maybe actually maybe five eleven, you know? And, uh, yeah, I just dunked in a warm up in a warm up right before our, our JV game, <laughs> 16 years old. Like, why am I in junior varsity? But yeah. And I was, and everyone's like, okay, didn't see that coming. And it just exponentially rose from there. A year later, I'm doing like almost between the leg. I'm doing just windmills and three sixties and stuff. So it took a while, but by 18, I was doing whatever you wanted me to do. Yeah. That's crazy. And so while you had this athleticism, I assume you were a decent student in high school academically. Academically. I mean, it was, it was easy A's and B's. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't the most passionate student in high school. I really found myself at like 19 sophomore year, but academically, intellectually, but I, the reason, the reason why I asked that is because, you know, I assuming I'm assuming a guy like you, as smart as you are out of of high school, you would have some options college wise, like academically where to go. Um, And so you're at this position in high school, uh, you're deciding where to go to school, well, you know, why Washington? Um, and what were some of the factors that led you to, to end up there? Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of looks, a lot of D3 looks, right? Freak athlete, you know, has a lot of potential on the court, but just really, you can tell he hasn't put the time, it hasn't had the game time experience, you know, the seasoned experience that someone would have playing four years in high school and actually playing. Um, but our uh, AU coach, Robert Icar, like I mentioned for BTI coach, trust me. He believed in me. He saw the potential I had, the athleticism, you know, I could, I could keep up with anyone on the court athletically. So he told me about an opportunity for a walk-on position at university of Washington. So obviously it wasn't scholarship, but I was like, Hey, that's the dream come true. You know, you hear about that underdog story where, you know, the walk-on comes in over time he earns a scholarship over time he's eventually going to be like a starting five type of player i wish i could say that was my story you know matter of fact i don't wish i could say that but i was thinking that would be my story and i really want to take advantage of that and see what it would be like to play with the best to play with nigel williams goss who's playing with utah jazz and won the uh the national championship with gonzaga or they lost they lost in the national championship uh, versus Virginia, right? But people like him, people like Robert Upshaw, who had 80 blocks, and oh, by the time team. he actually, by the time he got kicked off of our team, and he had more blocks than the whole Pac-12 combined, right? And just playing against those dudes like Ronda Hellas Jefferson, Stanley Johnson, playing against. Um, Stanley Johnson plays for the Raptors right now. Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown, Celtics. Cow. Oh my God. It was, it was so amazing. I wasn't playing that much, of course, but I'm playing in practice <laughs> and it was a beautiful experience, bro. Yeah. So, so talk to me about a young KJ Garrett freshman year at Washington, high major pack 12, big school, a lot of media attention and whatnot. Talk about, talk about that hoop environment. Talk about who were some of your more notable teammates. Um, you know, talk about the whole college experience, paint the picture small fish in a big pond we had wow olympians on the track team nfl players on the football team and mind you all these teams are mingling all these you know sports program there everyone knew everyone everyone's in the same we had this um 
this cafeteria is all you can eat buffet cafeteria style for all the athletes. So we're mingling at all times. Um, we had Kelsey Plum, who was like first round draft pick, had like 60 points in, in college in the WNBA. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she is so nasty, but she was, she's probably better than anyone on our team. <laughs> like if you put woman to man, <laughs> she was right. She's yeah. at the level of, Oh, she's, she's up there. She's like yeah. a, like a Zion kind of just dominating. Yeah. But just, just success, bro. Marco Foltz came the year after me. We were trying to get um, Michael Porter Jr. He was supposed to come before our, our coach got uh, cut. So it was just that type of environment that I was in. People were coming from the best schools in, in Las Vegas, you know, that academy. That's where Nigel came from. Um, Finley Prep, yeah. Exactly. Finley Prep. You know, we had kids like that, that caliber. And I'm over here to just walk on from, you know, L.A., grew up on the beach, you know, snowboarded in the winters, you know, played every sport, you know, You're surfer. Wondering, like, why can't I get a snow break in the middle of the season? This is <laughs> yes. going on, man. Yes, bro. Oh, my birthday is <laughs> on the 28th of December, so we always had a game on my birthday. But it was crazy, bro. Played with um, who's, uh, who's Rain Man over there in uh, – Sean Kemp Jr. He was on my team. Okay. okay. So we had some big names, bro. Big dogs, yeah. And I was just there being made yeah. fun of, you know, just they're they're barely calling me black. Like you can't even say like you're a white kid. Don't even think about saying the N word. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm mixed for all those that don't know who I am, half black, half white. But gotcha. Um it was crazy, bro. Yeah. So I'm I'm surprised that all these people you named, um, Oh, well, I guess you, you teed it up for me. You also played with DeJounte Murray, who's currently lead guard for the Spurs, and Matisse Thibel, who is the defensive stopper right now for the 76ers. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you have a relationship uh, you, with both of them. Talk about, you know, and Marquise Chris uh, with, the, with the Warriors. Talk about those guys, you know, being around them. Um, did, you, did, you, did you know they were going to be uh, in the NBA? Um, talk to me about that a little bit. I mean, those are great guys. They. DeJounte, he knew he was going to the NBA as soon as he walked onto the UW's campus. The other two, I don't know if they, they had that confidence in themselves or they had that hype around them, but they, they got themselves there. Um, Marquise, he played – it was his – he started playing basketball in high school. So, hit like, kind of like similar to me where I didn't have that experience. He didn't have that experience. And he was – turned out to be 6'9", freaking nature, athletic, and just, just built his game over time. And he was – you know, he got a lot of mentorship over there at UW. And he was a great kid. That was a lovely kid. He grew up in a very lovely family. You know, he had the right principles, right morals. So, he's so lovely. Yeah. And, I mean, he's doing his thing right now, right? I was a little closer to Matisse than all those guys. Uh, Matisse, I can relate to. He was mixed like me. Um, you know, he, he had a skateboard. You know, he wore Vans. Like, he was more, like, beachy like me, so I could really relate to the kid. But, um, yeah, I love that guy. We talk to, I talk to him every once in a while. Always try to stay in contact with him. But he's really down to earth. That kid is he's, – he's changing the culture of the league um, yeah. right now. It's he's not about – He's got his little vlog vlog series going out. His vlogs got super popular in the bubble. And I think a big reason why is because, like, the dude is, like, he, I feel a lot of people can relate to him. He seems, like, super chill, down to earth, um, big family guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, he's not afraid to not seem, um, like, above anyone, you know? Yeah. No one deserves what, 
what he where he's at more than him. That kid is a lovely soul. And um, I mean, yeah, he got into photography in the middle of college. So he found his niche outside of basketball, too. And he's really, you know, exploring that and taking advantage of that producing and directing. And I think that's that's a full career path after basketball for him. So he's one of the kids that really realized there's more to life than just basketball before he even got to the NBA. So he's one of those outliers. That's incredible. And that was going to lead me into my next question. Um, and which is, so the Washington, obviously high major school, when you're there, uh, when you're around the program, all the coaches, the administrators, it's all about with these players, basketball, basketball, basketball. So I want to talk about you specifically. What piqued your interest with the computer science and, and what made you take another interest into a, a different hobby um, instead of like, in, in, in addition to basketball, what got you into computer science? How'd you get introduced to that? Yeah, this is a, that's really a question of what makes you tick as a human. And I don't know what makes me tick until what made me tick until about 19 years old. So playing with these guys, you know, in a, in a D1 locker room with so much testosterone, so many people, you know, with so many ambitions for the game of basketball and life itself to get out of the ghetto, whatever it was, a lot of people were, went as a, fortunate as I was growing up, but I, I wasn't better than anyone. <laughs> I was one of the worst players in that locker room, objectively. I mean, when it came to running miles on the track, I'm, I'm beating everyone. When it came to the, you know, vertical testing or, or bench pressing, I was beating everyone, but that was just, just blessed to have that, those Jewish genetics, baby. <laughs> Definitely the Jewish genetics. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> but I wanted to be, dude, I wasn't better than anyone at that stuff. So in, in the, the game that mattered. So I needed to be better than people. I felt like it was a subconscious like yearning for me to become, to be good at something that someone wasn't, you know, it's that competitive, it's that survival of the fittest. It's that, just that, that social hierarchy, you know, you didn't want to be that bottom feeder, that like plebeian at the bottom. So I had to explore what made me good at something so when i was 19 you know i moved out of the dorm this was sophomore year i stayed with some of the uh, soccer players one of them's in the was in the mls and now he's in uh, in norway right now killing it um another one you know golfer was playing with some of the pro golfers over there uh, so we had you know pro soccer players pro golfers pro swimmers anything you could we actually didn't have a swim team that was going off the off the record there yeah uh, I really, you know, I found this yearning for, for learning and this intellectual curiosity. I don't know. It came out of the struggle of just being on the end of the bench, being, you know, made fun of sometimes or just not feeling my place and just failing value somewhere else. Basically you wanted to, you know, trying to find another strength that exactly that playing ahead of you don't have. Exactly. Exactly. That came with, I started reading every day outside of, outside of practice, outside of classwork. You know, I started taking classwork a little more seriously. Like, what do I, what do I like about this? Um, I was juggling. I was eating brain food. I was brushing, brushing my teeth with my left hand, <clears throat> trying to like engage the, the, the right side of the brain and sensory system instead of the, the left side, which is obviously the left part of the brain controls the right motor sensors. So kind of that thing, I was exploring neurobiology. Reinvention of yourself. Yes. If you're brushing your teeth with your left hand, you are trying to reinvent your intellectual capabilities and expand <laughs> your knowledge base. <laughs> exactly. I was listening to classical music. I was meditating. 
I was playing with the piano just to see, you know, different, different parts. I was, you know, I was really trying to engage my brain in different ways and see, stress it and see what it was capable of. And, you know, I didn't, I barely spoke Spanish then, right? Barely spoke Spanish. And then I, I eventually went to a, we're going to talk about probably but, that. My good. <laughs> yeah. So I, I did a whole master's degree in Spain. And so I just really wanted to learn and learn and learn. And then at that point, when I felt that there, I lost the, lost the ambition for basketball in a, in a healthy way. I lost that ambition. And I was like, I don't need this. I don't need to prove anything here. I don't need to prove anything to my dad. I don't need to prove anything to myself here. And, um, and I was, you know, I was looking for transfer opposition opportunities because, you know, Marco Fultz was coming in and there was just no place for me there <laughs> besides on the bench. And I, one of my mentors was telling me, yo, I got you. And I got some connections in the Ivy league. You know, you're going to sit out one year, but let me get you over there. You yeah. got the hype. You'll be able to, to do something. I was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Like I'm, I'm going to go D3. I'm going to go D3 where basketball is secondary. And I could really focus intellectually and explore my curiosities there. Right. So, okay. So you discovered, you know, computer science at Tufts. Exactly. Okay. Before we get to that, we have to talk about my man and apparently your best friend, Bill Walton. There was an ESPN game where. In China. In China where Bill Walton. Let's roll the clip. JJ, which stands for killer jumper. <laughs> he has made the most out of this experience. I couldn't be happier or more, more proud. What a personality. That guy's going places. He'll be worse. It's both in a six-point lead. He'll be working for Alibaba very soon as a senior executive. We both could be working for him soon. <laughs> KJ, why does Bill Walton like you so much? Oh, wow, that was a – don't even get me started. I mean, the opportunity to go – to to University of Washington, play Pac-12, that gives you access to basketball around the world. Different people, different caliber of people. We we did the um, inaugural Pac-12 showcase in in Shanghai. Um, first first game that we played in the NCAA in China, and it's this whole you know let's get media relations with China kind of situation. And we played the first one against University of Texas. Longhorn. So that was crazy. That was a whole week over there, understanding their culture, feeling the communism. It was crazy, but we were treated like, like Kings over there. You know, we had buses, we had police everywhere we went, um, you know, checked out their culture, hiked down different mountains with like Buddhist statues and met Jack Ma. I met Jack Ma, the CEO of Alibaba, richest man in, uh, in China to date. You know, he might not be the richest in soon but it was it was amazing so yeah I, I mean i was talking to all the executives i was getting business cards uh, i was just so that's that was after my intellectual curiosity just like kind of sprung and you know i was exposed to the business world because my mom was in business a lot of entrepreneurs in my city growing up so i really i felt like i could relate to those people and i just asked questions and questions and questions and bill walton was there when i was asking questions and i wasn't interrupting him but he was having conversations with some executives and then i came over there and interviewed the executives in front of him and he really saw that I was like taking advantage of that experience. Right. It wasn't just about basketball. It wasn't just about sitting around waiting for the game or practicing. It was like, you're in China once potentially, like how much are you going to get out of this? What knowledge are you going to bring back to the U S how are you going to make yourself a better person? And he really saw that I attacked from that angle yeah. and he, you know, he shouted me out 
in the middle of the game. Clearly, I was on the bench. But I was. Uh, yeah, and, and well, I need to backtrack a sec. Bill Walton is regarded as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Um, he was incredible. He played for UCLA under John Wooden, NBA Hall of Famer. Now he's an announcer that is recognized by a lot of people. He, he goes off the cuff, off different rants and stuff. Um, but he's yeah. extremely, even though he, he's crazy when he announces, he's so respected and, and loved throughout the game of basketball. Um, so it's incredible. It's awesome that he shouted you out. And um, I'm sure your phone, you know, your phone was blowing up probably uh, after the game. I want to tell you my Bill Walton story. Please. So, so we're playing USC on the road my freshman year. So I'm hyped. I'm going to LA for maybe the second time, third time. It's awesome. We're, we're having pregame shoot around at the, the Galen Center, right? Which is the of course USC stadium. So obviously the announcers, Bill Walton's there and he's, you know, getting information on people doing his homework, just like any announcer does before they, they call the game, right? And so after a shoot around, me and my coach, my assistant coach at that, Julius Hodge, who's a well-known assistant coach, one of my favorite coaches ever, awesome guy. Me and Coach Hodge, we go up to Bill Walton and just, you know, strike a conversation with him. You know, how you doing? What's going on? And 30 seconds into the conversation, we're, we're deep into the background of Lamar Odom's, like, troubled childhood. And Bill Walton's just talking about Lamar Odom. And, like, we, we didn't even, like, no one, no, one, no one instigated that. No one told him to talk about that. And so we kind of left the, the conversation with Bill on a really sad and somber note. And so <laughs> as we're walking away, as we're walking out of the Galen center, like me and coach Hodge look at each other and we're like, what the f- was he talking about? <laughs> Why was he talking about that? Like what? Like it was, what was in his head and um, like things ever, but it was, you know, me and coach Hodge were laughing about it. It was hilarious. But Anyways, Bill Walton, great guy, legend. So your time at Washington comes to an end. You're at Tufts now. Talk about the transition to the East Coast. You know, you're a West Coast guy. And, you know, if you're in the West Coast, it's hard to go to the other side of the country where it's cold, seasonal. Mm -hmm. But you're there and you're on your intellectual journey as well as playing basketball. Kind of talk about your, kind of some of your Tufts experience, specifically as it relates to, um, the beginning of your computer science career. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the two main schools I was looking at were Babson and Tufts at the end of the day. Babson went on to win the national championship that year that I transferred to Tufts. But I just didn't feel a, a, a warm feeling with the guys when we were practicing and playing together. I went to, they, were, they were taking it seriously, I'm going to be honest with you. We were all playing like a five-on-five scrimmage when I went to um, visit, and they were going hard. You know, they were playing hard D on me. I was like, dang, this is actually tough. This is, this is, this is not easy. And I went to Tufts. Locking you up. Uh, right? They were locking <laughs> me up. No, it was all right. I had some game winners. But, okay, yeah. And I went to Tufts and played basketball with them. And they were they're messing around a little more. I'm over here dunking in the game. Like, no one's playing the hardest defense. And I'm just like, these kids are just like, or they don't care about this right now. Like, they're just having fun. Like, they're probably hungover. <laughs> like, Right. But I mean, the school was, it's well, well renowned, much, much more renowned. Um, I heard people tell me some mentors when I was at UW, you know, we knew some Goldman Sachs guys and just the people that you got connected with that were, were funding the basketball team were crazy. And they were telling me, you know, Tufts is the way to go. 
So, and my be- one of my best friends from childhood, Thomas Lapham, went to- was at Tufts. Okay. So I was- that was a no-brainer. I hit that easily. And um, Boston is amazing, bro. We were two miles down from Harvard, uh, MIT, all the history there. Um, very liberal school, liberal arts. Um, you know, you see some guys wearing dresses, if I'm going to be honest here, which is, you know, totally respectable, you know, express yourself as you may, but it was that type of school. Um, and I mean, it was amazing though. Everyone was so smart and it's such a small school is about 4,000 people coming from UW was 40,000. And, you know, I felt kind of at home getting on the court, you know, being significant like that. It was, it was a privilege for sure, but basketball was definitely not the um, was not taken seriously like it was it uh, it felt like a club sport to be honest yeah yeah absolutely and and obviously you weren't there for basketball you were there to for act for academics and specifically and what we're going to talk about you know the majority of the time is com- we're going to educate people today kj on computer science i kj i took a coding class i don't know how to tell you i took a coding class uh in during one of the summer sessions when the Santa Clara team was at school and I was taking summer school courses, I was like, you know what? Coding is so applicable. It's where the world's going. Let me take a coding class. Man, that was the hardest <laughs> I've ever done. Like, that, and it was an introductory coding class with the best engineer, computer science engineering professor the Santa Clara department had. I just, it was so hard for me. What attracted you to that? What attracted you to that Tufts? And why? Yeah. Why coding? Why computer science? My major was economics going into Tufts. So I'm thinking business, you know, the study the social science of how society moves, how money moves, uh, what decisions are being made at the market level. That's what I was thinking. Like, okay, let's study that. <clears throat> Maybe become a, something in finance. But I really didn't like finance. My mom took me to some of her offices when I grew up and I was like, if I ever work in a building like this, <laughs> I cannot work in a building like this. <laughs> right. So I, I made fun of her growing up, which is bless her heart. I love her to death. She's the one, but I was like, no, nah, I'm not, this finance stuff is not for me. I took a computer science class my first year, my first semester there actually. Uh, and I'm an A and B student kind of guy. I don't put, I don't go all in. I kind of do like the bare minimum to get that three, five kind of, kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Meet right. That, that little check the box. Yeah, bro. I could be having fun. I could be spending my time reading other books, you know, yeah. having fun, getting an extra workout and doing, you know, doing some research on health and, and longevity. So long story short, I passed failed the first computer science class I, I took. I was like, this makes no sense. What is C++? I cannot do this. This is not for me. Um, I know I'm going to get a C in this. So I do not want to see on my, on my, um, on my G um, report cards. So bad I am the bad luck. So I passed, failed that. And I was, I wrote off computer science. That was the first year at Tufts. I was like, that's not for me. But one of my homies, actually, I met a kid who, so my girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, but girlfriend at the time at University of Washington, roomed with another girl, B. Let's not say her name, but she was person B. Okay, person B. And person B, my ex-girlfriend's roommate, was dating a dude you know, from Seattle, right? That grew up, grew up with her, but went to Tufts University. Okay, person C. This is my brother, Connor. I can say his name. C for Connor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, C for Connor, exactly. That was corny, all right. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a cop side guy, brain, brilliant kid. But, you know, we kind of bonded over the fact that, you know, I met him one time at UW, 
and we were saw him every once in a while my first year there in the cafeterias and stuff saw him out every once in a while but we eventually just i don't know kept seeing each other and grew this bond because we both had ex-girlfriends in seattle <laughs> it was so funny and um and we eventually decided to room and live together the next year in, in my junior year or my my senior year i actually took two senior years there and took a fifth year just because of the you know credits from uw going to no, liberal arts no, it's frustrating i know yeah exactly that d1 to d3 it's just it's tough so yeah and he was a comp side guy and we were just ideating you know like thinking of business ideas thinking what's next this that and the other and and just hearing like from his perspective what he thought about computer science is just being exposed you're the average of the five people around you so i became the average of the people around me who were nerds and like brilliant kids who were you know one kid spoke dutch mandarin uh english and knew the piano better than than most right he was just nasty with the piano uh that was one of my roommates another kid was just this brilliant theater guy you know actor kind of vibe very uh, artistic another one was my friend connor who was computer science oriented and just, just very raw intelligence and had the most intellectual philosophical conversation so i just absorbed all of them and i was like i want to build some i need to build this app a b and c and i'm not paying for it I was just, all these ideas were coming to my head. I'm like, yeah, I need to, I need to learn how to code. I need to learn how to code. Yeah. Obviously you, you started to learn it and, and understand it. Um, what, what would you say, and, and give me the timeline of this, is this while you're in Tufts or when you graduated, what was the kind of, what was the first big thing you built? In December about of 2017. And by the time my fifth year, my second senior year came around, I was still living with the homie Connor and a few other guys, um, one was very entrepreneurial. And I just, we just built, built stuff for the resume. Uh, I wasn't really building stuff, trying to make a billion dollar business, but for the one LinkedIn, thing I built. You were just building stuff for the LinkedIn. Yeah, exactly. We built this app for um, special needs kids. There's a special needs department in Seattle. Uh, his mom is a teacher, so she worked in this, uh, at the school and the special needs department was trying to build this thing called a coffee cart where these, you know, autistic and, and kids with various special needs, they wanted to build social skills and future skills for them. So they would, you know, interact with like a POS point of sale system. They would like at Starbucks, they would interact with a customer, which would be a teacher. Would you like tea? Would you like coffee? Uh, they would fulfill that order. They try to fulfill that order and, um, you know, bring it back to whatever cafe or like little lunchroom cafeteria, create the coffee, create the tea and then serve it to the customer. So that was the kind of process user experience or that's what they wanted to do for the kids. So we pretty much built an app that fit that need that they could do all that via, you know, an iPhone app or an Android app. So I pretty much shouldered the whole development process there. It took me about a month. You know, I'm taking the hardest computer science classes at Tufts just to finish the minor. And I'm over here building apps within five weeks, just busting them out. <laughs> what a legend. So you're, you're literally, you're doing school and you're creating apps at the same time. And you are playing basketball. I mean, like, that's yeah. the, that is a, a ton on your plate. And that's, that's tremendous. I have a lot of respect for, especially the, uh, the purpose of the, the special needs app to, to help those kids. So just to keep the timeline moving, you're like, all right, cool. Got my degree from Tufts. I have a solid base um, in, in computer science and software engineering. And then you decide to attend Universidad Politecnica de Catalunya y tú estudiaste uh, las ciencias de la computadora 
and my Spanish is rusty, but you went to school in Spain. Talk about that decision. Like, are you like, that's, that's crazy to some people. Yeah. Yeah. I studied ciberseguridad por ahí, por allá en, en Barcelona. Bueno, es, fue una right. experiencia muy terrifica. There's a, muy dura también. KJ, there's a big chance that you and me are the only people like who were interacting <laughs> with this episode that have any sense of Spanish. So we, we do have to keep it in English, but <laughs> if you guys didn't understand that, KJ is fluent in Spanish now, but I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, dude, it was ex a crazy experience. I went over there by myself, you know, realistically, I was like, I, I don't think I can get a software job right here with just a minor and a couple applications. I don't have that real internship experience. So it was, you know, it was a grind, you know, came from D1 and kind of trying to play catch up with all these brilliant computer scientists right in my back door, back, uh, backyard, MIT, Harvard, even on campus at Tufts. You know, I'm over here trying to compete with them, just like I was trying to compete with, with DeJounte Murray for some playing time. <laughs> like, it's impossible. How are you going to compete with some MIT kid that actually probably invented a computer programming language or, you know, is the next Bill Gates, except in Harvard, next Zuckerberg. So I was competing with them for jobs which was which is a challenge so yeah I, I i wanted to go back to school to really you know build that confidence in myself and show the world that i was ready to do something like that so took the education to a further level um and in barcelona i actually um, my girlfriend at the time is was german you know grew up in born in ukraine speaks russian and and uh and grew up in germany and i wanted to be closer to her too and we were doing like a long distance my fifth year at tufts And I was like, yo, let's go study over there. I had a mentor that was in Silicon Valley who connected me with his CTO, his chief technology officer, who was actually in Barcelona. And he's like, the only way to work over here, of course, you want to be in Spain because you don't know German, you know, a little bit of Spanish, you know, you can build on that. And he's like, the only way to work over here is to get is to study, you know, get a get a degree over here. So I was like, let me get a degree over there. You know, I'm closer than I have a degree in Europe. Maybe I want to stay there or maybe I'm going to go back. We'll see. But, yep, I, I, this school, UPC, Universidad Politecnica de Catalonia, it was like top 30, top 30 or top 40 in the world for computer science. And I don't know how the heck I got into that school, bro. But, oh, my God, it was blessings. It was meant to be. And that whole thing was in Spanish. Yeah, were you having trouble at first trying to, you know, talk to people in Spanish? Were, were the classes difficult? Uh, and uh, did you, was it easy or hard to make friends? Talk about kind of the, the whole ex experience as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Quick, quick overview of the experience. First, first month and a half, two months was impossible. What were they saying in class? They were speaking so fast and their, their first language over there is Catalonian, right? They It's not even Spanish. It's Catalonian, exactly. right? Exactly. They want to secede from the nation. So they have the nether accent on top of Spanish that they use and the way they speak Spanish is a little bit different. So it was like, what is happening? It's like trying to learn English. if You never heard a British accent or something. It was just those nuances like that. It's like, what are you even saying? So that was crazy. But, you know, a lot of friends I met were they were all international. So a lot of people spoke English. So I was meeting a lot of friends from Italy and Germany and actually Spain itself. And they spoke English. So we had a lovely time there. I went to some language exchanges, you know, met another homie um, from, from Germany actually. And he was, he wanted to learn Spanish well. So we met once a week and we would just chat in Spanish. You know, we get something to eat and we would just talk. And first of all, it would be like, so basic. Help you. Okay. Exactly. 
Yeah, Valentine, my homie. Shout out, Valentine. Shout out, Valentine, man. That's the guy right there. Yeah, <laughs> dude. And I was, oh my god, I was traveling around because my my girl was there at the time, ex girl now, and traveling to to Austria, to Germany, to Hungary, to around Spain, going to Italy, going to England, my birth town, going to France. Oh my god, bro, Europe is different. And just to have that opportunity, you know, some people do it playing basketball. I had the opportunity to do it while I was getting a degree and further my education and getting deeper into this this career in computer science. So I was like, it was a blessed time. But obviously it was cut short last March because of COVID. So right. the whole year program had to get sent home in, in March and then finished it until July at home in LA, which was tough. Okay. So you finished it up remotely, but when you were there... It was, you know, it, it seemed like a fantastic experience. They say you're a result of your experiences. And, you know, if, if someone understands, like, wants to know how you become so well-rounded and intellectual and speak of millions of languages and feel like you learn a different language every week that you try to <laughs> show off, this is part of it. This is, you know, part of your experience. Um, can you talk about specifically what happened in Spain with the protests? I saw there were protests happening on, happening where you were living streets flooded with angry people can you explain what was going on and 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 what happened and were you safe like what was going on uh, during some of the spanish protests the governors you know the 13 or so governors of catalonia under the spanish government were signing petitions to secede from the nation like let's get out of here i'm california let's get out or i'm the south and let's just let's just leave the u.s so that was crazy and what happened to that is the the central government in Spain? They started exiling the those governors, governors that signed that petition, initiated that. They started exiling people, and if you didn't weren't exiled, you'd be uh, sentenced to a decade in prison or something like that. And like like just for a petition, they were losing everything that they had. So the people corralled under that and were just demonstrating. And, and lighting off, lighting cars on fire, throwing stuff at police. And this wasn't the local police. This was just the national police force. Yeah, the police force. Right? Yeah. Exactly. They were throwing rocks at them and stuff like that. It was crazy, bro. If you were up until 2 a.m., you'd hear crazy stuff happening. They would have those riot shields and just governors pushing back thousands of people or at least like 500 people it was so epic bro we actually went out a few nights my mom was like do not go out people were like do not leave the house we just ran around to see what was going on i have some crazy photos but you know every intersection main intersection in barcelona had a like pile of trash in the middle of it and just flamed flamed like at least 20 feet in the air it was crazy that's nuts man and and you showed me i saw videos you showed me when it was happening and i was generally concerned for your safety and (laughs) curious about why you were so not scared and so nonchalant about <laughs> pitchfork protests right outside your door and you're just like hey, they weren't mad at me bro <laughs> they weren't mad at me I'm a, I'm a young black kid out there in spain i have nothing to do with anything they were mad at the gov no 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 hablo espanol no <laughs> English. that's hilarious man but i'm but in all seriousness i'm i'm glad you're you're back in yet in the states and safe now we've kind of painted the picture of how you've gotten up to this point and your experiences. And so a lot of times when, when hoopers and people that are listening, they think about computer science, data engineering, um, in, in 30 seconds, they start falling asleep. But today 
we are going to change the narrative because KJ, you are going to help me talk to our audience about what exactly you do and why it's important, why people should be more interested in what you do. So we're going to start off by talking about you work, you right now, you are currently a data engineer for C3 AI. C3 AI, for people that don't know, is at the forefront of technological innovation, specifically regarding enterprise AI software. Would you agree with that? Mm -hmm. Enterprise AI, exactly. Enterprise AI. Um, huge company, uh, huge valuation. It's gone public. You know, you're currently in the middle of all that. Um, but we need to kind of build a framework. Do you mind explaining to someone who has, in, in 30 seconds or less, this, this is hard, but I think you're the right guy to do it because I think people will listen to you. What is enterprise AI? Why should we care about it? This is not investment advice, I have to say, initially. <laughs> Enterprise AI is simply bringing various disparate data sources into a unified image, running analytics, predictive analytics on that, and various machine learning algorithms to get a specific output uh, prediction set. And Companies can use that to predict future demand, how much they should supply, how much inventory they should have at a time, inventory optimization, uh, when to maintain or when to replace parts in um, you know, government jet, various things like that, when to replace sensors on oil rigs that are responsible for you know, bringing oil um, in companies like Shell offshore. So crazy stuff, using data at scale, at the biggest volumes, at the biggest level that you can, data from manufacturing companies, oil and gas, utility companies, you know, electric grid companies, taking all that data, you know, sensors are producing data in every second, every millisecond. It is crazy. Taking that data, compiling it, organizing it in a way that it can be used as input to these artificial intelligence algorithms and these companies can change their bottom line, save billions of dollars uh, based off this. Gotcha. So basically you are using art, you're using data for companies to make future business decisions and you're, you're, you're compiling this data through artificial intelligence um, exactly. to help you make strategic decisions. And C3 um, is the software that helps, helps this happen. Is, is this correct? I'm trying to paraphrase what you said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, C3 has built the software. I'm not going to say I built the software. I helped build the applications for the customers. But yeah, they, <laughs> the, yeah. the people that have come before me, the brilliant employees have built this, these platforms and these and applications. You are a part of that brilliant employee pool now because you, <laughs> you are, you're with them now. Um, obviously, there's extremely bright minds. Um, incredible minds in, in this industry and in, in C3 specifically talk to it. What is a data engineer? Why, if, if I'm a hooper listening right now and I'm in college and you know, I don't even know what I'm going to be doing next week, or I have no idea what I'm going to do when I'm done hooping. Well, to tell, explain someone like that. What is data engineering? Data engineering is, is applying software engineering principles and data science principles to 
streams of information to make sense of it, whether that's organize it, uh, structure it, categorize it, move it from place A to B, keep it secure, um, all of the above, doing that and more to data. And usually it's for, for input or it's the beginning of a pipeline. We use the word pipeline a lot, data pipeline. Um, using all that, as the beginning stage of the pipeline for machine learning, for artificial intelligence, for BA, everyone knows business analytics, right? right? Like IBM, yep. like traditional business analytics software, let's run statistics, use Excel on this data to find, you know, insights on that. It's the beginning of that pipeline to eventually go to those analytics, to eventually go to let's save money, let's make money, to make the world go around a little, little better. A little better. Basically, you, yeah, you're, you're, it's hard for me to sum this up, but you, you're doing work that increases the efficiency of businesses. Um, Simply, yeah. Simply you're making decisions faster based off data that you know you're help helping extract from the creation of the machine that extracts the data. Um, mm -hmm. How do you like it so far? What's a typical day for you? Typical day for me is a lot of meetings. I know all of you that don't like a sedentary lifestyle. Um, you know. You got to get used to it. You got to get used <laughs> to moving around, you know, taking breaks often, but a lot of meetings, a lot of discussing with the customer. I work as like a consultant, you know, so I have little software engineering skills, little consultant skills and not too much data science skills, but kind of not like the AI part, not like the actual mathematics behind it, but a lot of data exploration, data validation skills, just, you know, just, just let's focus in. Anyone can do it. Anyone with a quantitative mind that's really can focus their brain for a couple hours can do uh, that portion of the work, you know, that data, data exploration portion, but software, you got to put in some work for that. And, and the consultant part, you just got to be able to, you know, relate to humans, put them first, understand their needs, <clears throat> figure out, predict where they're trying to go with that and solve their problems before they do, or, you know, like, you know, give them a pat on the back in, in a, in a subtle way, you know, when they do something right and just, you know, just teamwork, teamwork. Right. So that's, I learned that from basketball. I learned the grind and the hustle from basketball and training. So that really put me here. But the intellectual curiosity combined with the, that basketball intention of work ethic really allowed me to get to a company where there's actually Olympians. The Olympians actually have ended up at a company like this or the Stanford master's degrees and PhDs at MIT and from all over the world studying everything from petroleum engineering to mechanical engineering to, you know, physics and, and computational physics. All those people are, can, are working at my company. And I just feel so blessed to be around these brilliant people. I feel like I made it to the NBA finally, but in a different way, you know. You made it to the league of, of enterprise AI. You <laughs> the made to the forefront of where the world is going. You are in the association. Absolutely. Uh, but but uh, AIA. And, and uh, but five years ago, I don't know, five, six years ago, you were just on a kid thinking about uh, on, on the bench on Washington, thinking about look, what's the move for tonight? <laughs> and look where you are now. I mean, your journey is incredible. Um, and what you're doing, what you're doing um, is incredible. And I think like our generation needs to become more interested and in, in put more value into what you're doing because in five to 10 years, I'll ask you, where do you think we'll be? Where is, where is C3 going to be and, and what will, you know, what, what's that going to look like? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, in five to ten years, dude, we'll see if Amazon's broken up, if Facebook's broken up, if Google's broken up. Those are the real questions we need to be asking because as a data engineer, yeah, I'm manipulating all this data or I'm collecting it or I'm moving it from A to B in, a, in the most efficient way. But they're collecting data on you and me and all of our, your listeners via Facebook, via Google search, via, you know, right, Twitter. And they're running sentiment analysis, which is just checking what words that you're saying and what mood you're in and try to predict the next product that you have and just taking all your private data, which you, know, you may like or not. And they're doing some crazy stuff with it. And they're becoming very powerful because of it. They're influencing elections, influencing and compromising our democracies. They are turning us against each other, you know, by affirming your beliefs, confirmation bias and showing you QAnon stuff because you love QAnon or showing you extremely liberal stuff because you love hating on Trump. Whatever it is, bro, we're becoming, it's a scary place. So this data is, is the most important discussion right now. Right. And how, what do we want to do with it? Do we want to harness it? Do we want to store it? Should we not be storing it? And a lot of these companies are just using it for AI applications to make it more addictive. What we're doing is, is increasing efficiency of production of oil, meaning we are lowering, you know, the output, environmental output of, of fossil fuels. That's what we're doing with AI you know, and inventory optimization, which is we don't need to ship this much across the sea. We don't need to ship this much across the air. That is saving fossil fuels, right? This AI, AI in this scale is potentially saving the planet, you know, making it more efficient. Obviously you need governments to get in there and give incentives for these things like carbon taxes, but AI in the way that, you know, you and I think of it, that's scary. It's so important um, kind of where we're going to understand the trends in, in AI and in data collection. Um, but thank you so much for explaining that. I want, here's a big takeaway I want a lot of people to get out of this. We've, so now up to this point, we've described your whole journey of, of playing basketball, under, picking up computer science, learning a trillion languages. Um, for, for people who don't understand like kind of what you've gone through, how did you deal with being a hooper, having a basketball pedigree, but doing something that's kind of outside the mold and, and talk and being strong with your interest and not letting, did you deal with any naysayers saying like, you know, why the hell are you doing computer science? You know, stick to hooping. How did you deal with that? And what message do you have for, for people who um, may be going through kind of the same thing? That's a tough question right there. Um, I think everyone has so much freedom to explore their intellectual curiosities, unless you have, you know, people in your direct circle, like family or that are bullying you into or making fun of you into not doing that. And that's just toxic. But if you have a passion, obviously sports is, are going to take you a certain way. Everyone sports is going to take everyone a certain distance, but it's the stuff that you do outside of that, that really defines you. So you really have to explore yourself and figure out what you like, what you enjoy. And it's not all going to be easy. You know, when I start studying computer science, sometimes really focus in on a problem that I have to do. I also release epinephrine and neuroepinephrine like everyone else. I am releasing the stress hormone and it's hard to focus and study this stuff a lot. It's, it doesn't come natural to me like a genius that just as soon as they have a hard time, they, right. they start releasing dopamine and start loving it. I also am a normal human where I, like this stuff is hard for me. I, but I realized that the, the outcome and the reward from, from learning that and getting there you know, and achieving that, checking that off. I know now know that that feels so good to me. That's amazing. So I can push through that stress 
just like those people do in in buds before the navy you know they're sleep deprived and they don't their whole like you know reward system is, is shot but they understand the process and even though the stress is being released they understand there's a next step now i'm not as good as them at doing it but i'm trying to get there it's a process yeah that's great thank you thanks so much for sharing that all right, KJ, let's, let's talk about your playlist, man. What are you listening to these days? What are you trying to put the audience onto today? Oh, that's, that's not a tough one. I'm going to be honest with you. I've not been listening to a lot of, <laughs> it's not tough at all. I've been listening to a lot of like hip hop jazz vibes, Talk you know, that lo-fi, but a little more upbeat. I haven't been listening to a lot of lyrics because I don't need to hear what the next rapper has to say to me right now. I'm not in that phase where we're, we're cussing, we're talking about drinking and partying. I can't relate to that. So I don't want to hear that toxic energy sometimes. So really, I'm on the vibe of these instrumentals, you know, that bring in that, that jazz in the initial, you know, that black culture that we created, you know, jazz back in the, obviously the 20s and 60s, all the way up. But that history that we have, as long as well as the hip hop beats, and then you throw a little electronic in there, little funk, a little house music, those beats, right? Hip hop, electronic, and jazz. The culmination of that has brought me to, to where I'm at right now. And it really just gives me that, you know, it reduces my stress. It really keeps me focused and I can enjoy the day and enjoy the process a little better with well, this music. What, what artists um, will be, people be clicking on when they hit this playlist link? You can be listening to someone like Ezra Collective. Okay. Who is a, you know, British band. We got some, uh, some culture there. And they, they really have the jazz. They're really on the forefront of jazz right now Yeah. Um, in that space. But, you know, you're going to be listening to Vanilla, who was, uh, you know, a low-key hip-hop kind of funky jazz electronic vibe. And it really can Vanilla get Ice or another Vanilla? No, another Vanilla. Okay, um, Vanilla Ice. Hold the ice. <laughs> hold the ice. Keep the Vanilla. Skip the ice. Okay. But yeah, and I got some, I got some other stuff for you. Just, just open up the playlist and, um, you know, you'll be able to get some serious work done. The playlist will be included in the podcast. Um, and if you want to know more about KJ, we'll include links of his portfolio in the podcast. C3AI, please check out the company, understand kind of what KJ does. It'll be super relevant to the kind of times we're in. KJ, thank you so much for joining the podcast. This is a blast, man. And um, best of luck in your future endeavors. Noah, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you doing this and, and having me on the show. And, you know, I'll be seeing you soon as soon as we cross paths in, in the city, whether it's LA or San Fran. Oh, yeah. And we're out of here.